Good day, Crime Talk aficionados. This is Crime Talk. It is March 1st, 2024, and we have a great show for you today. First, can you really trust DNA? Michelle Traconis has been found guilty. Now, do you remember that woman who ran her car into a bride and groom in South Carolina? Well, she is finally out of custody. The cost of the Brian Koberger case, some insights, and um, the Rust trial reveals some more facts about Alec Baldwin's conduct. And how many times have I said it? Don't let your kids go to sleepovers. I'll give you another example why. Attempted murder or simply defending your daughter's honor. And then finally, our dumb criminal of the day. Let's talk about it. Hi, lawyer. Lawyer. Good day, everyone. My name is Scott Reich, and this is Crime Talk. Thanks for joining us. You know the drill. Subscribe if you haven't, like if you do, leave me a comment below, and hit that little bell for notifications. Remember, you can watch us here not only on YouTube, but Rumble, X, Roku, and Twitch as well. All right, as you can see, we're not in a suit today. No court, going into deep trial prep. And so we dressed totally casual for today. So excuse my attire. First, can we trust DNA anymore? Well, it's certainly got to give you a little bit of pause. Now, over the last several months, there's been some issues here in Colorado, and I'm sure it's not just in Colorado. And obviously, everyone is given the presumption of innocence, but there was a report that goes back uh, back in November of uh, 2023 that a former Colorado Im Bureau of Investigation scientist by the name of Yvonne Missy Woods is under investigation for anomalies found in her DNA testing at the Colorado Bureau of Investigation. Well, you think that may be no big deal, right? Except that she was there for 29 years and the fact that she had worked on some of the biggest high-profile cases Colorado has really ever seen. And a lot of them were cold cases where, but for Miss Woods, she put a match together and uh, therefore a person was tried and when likely convicted. All right. Or she was, he was convicted. So it goes into a lot of issues. And then today, the Weld County Sheriff's Office. Now, just to give you some context of where this may be located, uh, Weld County is where Christopher Watts was uh, prosecuted. Uh, Weld County had some involvement in that case, and I'm not saying there was any misconduct in it. And just to give you some perspective where they are located north of um, uh, Denver here uh, in Colorado. So the Weld County Sheriff puts out a statement today regarding uh, their office DNA analyst has been terminated. So like I said, this is dated March 1st, comes from the uh, Weld County Sheriff. Shiara Wench, C-H-I-A-R-A-W-U-E-N-S-C-H, -E -E a DNA analyst who worked for the Weld County Sheriff's Office at the Northern Colorado Regional Forensic Lab for just over 10 years was the subject of an internal investigation that began on January 31st, 2024. 
The internal investigation centered on uh, Wench's having anomalies in her casework. The finding of the internal investigation revealed that uh, Wench violated the Weld County Code for Expectations of Proper Conduct and the Sheriff's Office's Standards of Conduct policy for not cooperating with the agency's internal investigation. Based upon these findings, the Sheriff's Office terminated Wench's employment on February 28, 2024. The Sheriff's Office intends to pursue criminal charges against Wench for the alleged anomalies in her casework. However, those charges have yet to be determined as the criminal investigation is ongoing. The anomalies in the casework were brought to light due to a separate active investigation conducted by the Colorado Bureau of Investigations into their own personnel. Due to the ongoing nature of CBI's investigation, no further information is available at this time. The anomalies discovered in uh, the uh, casework were limited and how this will impact the criminal cases she worked on is yet to be determined by the criminal investigation. The sheriff goes on and says, we hire people that we believe have the utmost integrity. No system is better than the people who work in it, said the Weld County Sheriff, Steve Reams. The Weld County Sheriff's Office investigation is still ongoing and no further information will be released until its conclusion. So I bring that to you, ladies and gentlemen, because this is oftentimes what happens in these types of cases. You have situations where the prosecutor will bring in the DNA analyst and the DNA analysts are touted as that they are scientists. They have no dog in this fight whatsoever. And therefore, they should be believed beyond the utmost scrutiny. I've told you about a case that we had where we said that there were problems with the DNA years ago. They looked at us like we had a third eye on our forehead. And then literally like eight years later, five years later, we get a letter saying, oh, sorry, um, we did a, a, an evaluation or analysis of what was taking place. And um, we determined that there was a uh, problem in the DNA analyst uh, conclusions. Oh, there was contamination. The DNA of the worker got into the sample. Oh, but yet we were made to look like, how dare you question us? How dare you question a scientist? They are beyond reproach. How dare you do that? And so I don't want people to lie in their DNA results. The DNA is what it is, and that's what it should be. But the problem is these are not independent labs. These are people that work for CBI, the Colorado Bureau Investigation. These are people that work in a regional lab where a sheriff's office in a rural jurisdiction sends somebody over and they fund this person to work in these labs. And if they believe they are part of the team, and this is what it's going to take to get the guy that they know that just did it, but they just can't prove it, well, guess what? That's wrong. That's wrong. Now, obviously, we'll give the uh, presumption of innocence, obviously, to Miss Woods and to Miss Wench, W-U-E-N-S-C-H, however the hell that's pronounced. I don't know. But the reality of it is that's her name. She works for the agency. And now there's been more anomalies in all these DNA experts. It should give everyone a little pause before they blatantly believe DNA evidence. Next on the docket, 
Michelle Traconis breaks down after she is found guilty of conspiring to murder the missing Connecticut mother, Jennifer Dulos. Now, the American Venezuelan socialite broke down as she uh, sat with her head in her hands as the guilty verdict was read this morning. She was convicted of all six counts, including conspiracy to commit murder and tampering with evidence linked to the disappearance of the mother of five, Jennifer Dulos, back in May of 2019. Now, Jennifer Dulos is um, now the vanished mom. Uh, was in the midst of a bitter divorce with Traconis's lover, Photos Dulos, who was charged with her murder, but he committed suicide before his trial. Now, Traconis was led out of the courtroom in handcuffs, and the judge set her bond now at $6 million cash only. She will be sentenced on May 31st, and she faces up to 50 years in prison. Now, the trial began in early January as prosecutors argued that she helped dispose of Jennifer Dulos's body in trash bags after photos slayed her in their Connecticut home. Now, Jennifer uh, Dulos vanished in May 24th of 2019 after dropping her children off at school, and her body has never been found. The mom, whose children were aged between the ages of 8 and 13 at the time, uh, was reported missing when she failed to show up for several appointments in New York City. Now, because Photo Dulos killed himself before he could stand trial, the details of how Jennifer disappeared were left to Traconis's conspiracy trial. Now, as you may recall, Photos Dulos wrote a letter completely exonerating Michelle Traconis, but guess what? That's not coming into evidence. It is inadmissible hearsay. The person writing it, not subject to cross-examination, not coming in. So the prosecutors had said that Photos Dulos attacked his wife in the garage of her home and put her body in her Chevy Suburban before driving it about three miles away where uh, it was later found abandoned. Later on the day of her disappearance, Traconis was seen with Photos Dulos on surveillance footage at around 7.30 p.m., stopping at several locations around Hartford, Connecticut, with the businessman seen dropping off several trash bags along the way. I mean, let's face it, Michelle Traconis maybe should have asked a question or two and maybe jumped out, hey, photos, what's going on? You know, I've never done this before, but I would like to dispose of several trash bags in some random uh, trash cans around the city. Do you mind coming with me? Let's roll. That was her biggest problem. Anyway, the police recovered some of the bags several days later and found bloody clothing, zip ties, and other items containing DNA matching Jennifer and Photos Dulos. One bag had Traconis's DNA on it as well, which would make you think that maybe she was holding the bag open while something was stuffed into it. Well, at the trial, jurors were shown some images of blood-spattered evidence, including stains around Jennifer's Connecticut home. Now, the state police detective uh, that was kind of uh, involved, uh, Matthew Riley, testified that he spotted bloodstains on several surfaces in Jennifer's kitchen, including on a paper towel roll, sink faucet, and countertop in her garage. Now, jurors were also shown photos of bloodstains on Jennifer's abandoned Chevrolet Suburban. Now, blood was also found on the exterior of a Range Rover in their garage, and police found evidence of an attempted cleanup there in the garage as well. Now, as a result of the significant amount of blood apparently cleaned from the scene, it was clear that Jennifer was deceased, and a judge actually declared Jennifer 
Dulos officially dead as the trial was ongoing. Now, Traconis was a former ESPN host in South America, and she had been living with Photos and her daughters in their Farmington, Connecticut home that the businessman had once shared with his wife and children. Now, after Jennifer was reported missing, Traconis was brought in for questioning where she claimed she thought the bags seen in the surveillance video footage contained goods from one of the homes that Photos was selling at the time. Officers also found uh, what came to be known as the alibi scripts, two pages of uh, written notes by Photos and Traconis that detailed their activity on a nearly hourly basis the day that Jennifer was last seen, but didn't include the bag disposal time. Now, Traconis claimed they detailed their actions on the advice of Fotos's lawyer, but the arrest warrant also alleges that she presented conflicting stories to police during three interviews that she gave on whether she saw Fotos on the morning uh, before or the day of that uh, Jennifer had actually uh, died. So, Ms. Traconis, guilty. Um, I didn't watch the entire trial, but the parts that I watched, it looked like the defense was doing well. I thought it was a little slow by the uh, prosecution and their presentation of evidence. A lot of people in the comments said not guilty. Other people said guilty. Frank said, I think she had a shot, but the fact that they literally deliberated just about all week, clearly somebody was holding out and somehow uh, or through the normal juror process, people's minds were possibly changed, whereby they were convinced of beyond a reasonable doubt, which was the legal standard, that she was in fact guilty. Now, the video where she breaks down and you see her attorneys sitting there, the young associate off to the end, trying to comfort her, the lead attorney just sitting there, there I've been there, there's nothing you can do. You're still in that trial psychosis of no matter how bad the facts are, how could they have found my client guilty? You don't know what to say to the client. You're never going to say sorry because you didn't do anything wrong. It's like, that's just the way it is. So next, the bride killer gets a bond. Remember Jamie Lee Komorski? She was being held without bond when she was arrested after rear-ending a golf cart carrying a newlywed couple by the name of Samantha Miller and Eric Hutchinson and uh, two others as they left the Folly Beach wedding reception back in April 28th of last year. The judge granted Komorski a $150,000 bond this morning. She'll be placed on house arrest, can't leave the home except for uh, medical emergencies or go to court. And she will also be required to wear a device that monitors her blood alcohol level, AKA a scram unit. She must surrender her passport and live in Charleston County. And oh, most obviously, no driving. Now, the judge originally denied the bond for Komorski last August, but said that if the trial was not ready to go by March, that she could have a bond with multiple conditions. As you may recall, or I'll refresh your memory, she is charged with three counts of felony DUI, resulting in great bodily injury or death, and one count of reckless homicide. Now, Mitch Hutchins filed a wrongful death suit back in May against Komorski and uh, several bars where she had visited before the crash. That's known as a dram shop case. 
two of those bars and an insurance company have settled. Now, Ms. Komorski, I get it. Nobody wants to be in prison, but hey, general rule, dead body, somebody's got to go to prison. You might as well stayed in custody because you're going to get that credit for when you do ultimately go to prison. I get it. You want to get out. You want to show the judge that you can be a good, good person. But the reality of it is I'd be very surprised if you didn't go back to prison. Now, I could be wrong, but like I said, general rule, somebody's got to go to prison. And when the victim gets up and says, my bride has, or my uh, husband has been killed and we had uh, great plans together, it's going to be pretty emotional and the judge is going to sentence you to prison. So I would have saved the money and um, stay in custody. Next, the cost of the Brian Koberger case. All right. So a request was made uh, to the courts in Idaho requesting that public records uh, be disclosed as to the expense of the Brian Koberger matter. The judge, Judge John Judge, issued an order the other day basically saying we can give you limited information, but a lot of it uh, does not address uh, the statute prohibits the release of many other records in this particular case. So the gist of it is, is the judge uh, issued an order to a reporter's uh, request for public records asking about the total costs associated with the ongoing Koberger case. The judge wrote that uh, the district court is not the custodian judge for records pertaining to the total cost of the case against Mr. Koberger, and it has no knowledge of the total costs associated with the Koberger defense. Uh, he states in the order, this is to ensure that any decisions made by the courts are not in any way influenced by the cost of the case, the judge put in his order. Now, Ann Taylor the public defender representing Brian Koberger is entitled to a payment of some $200 per hour, according to the documents that were released, and a uh, co-counsel, uh, he can get up to $180 per hour. Now, obviously, the court will be funding any experts and the costs of uh, defending Mr. Koberger as well. And that is uh, just, and obviously the state, if they believe that the requests are reasonable, will have to pay for those. Now, let's just give you a quick calculations here. $200 an hour, assuming this is the only case that uh, the public defenders are working on as it relates to Brian Koberger, which is more than likely the case because it's a death penalty case. Let's just say at $200 an hour and you are making eight hours a day working on a minimum, uh, that's $1,600 a day. That can add up pretty darn quick. That doesn't include administrative staff, expert witnesses, etc. Now, I'm not saying that the public defenders would try to make this as expensive as possible for the state, since it is a death penalty case, but they may. But guess what? All of those fees are going to be reasonable. Now, I'm not saying they're going to pad their bill. I wouldn't assume that, but they're going to keep meticulous accounting of all of their time spent. And my guess is they're working on this case literally at a minimum 40 hours a week, if not more. So it's going to be even more expensive. Just do the math. It's very, very quick. So there you go. In fact, let me do the math. Let's do the math here real quick. So let's calculate $1,600 a day for one attorney, 
that is at the rate of $200 an hour for eight hours. The other attorney makes $100, $180 an hour times eight hours a day. That is $1,440 plus the uh, $1,600 a day. That's a total of uh, $3,000 a day. Let's just say they work 18 days. Let's just, now let's go 20 times uh, 20 days in the week, in the month. So that is uh, roughly $60,000 per month in attorney's fees. And that's saying 20 days. We're not saying they're going to work weekends, but they probably are. Uh, so that's a month. So by the time we get to trial at $60,000 a month, let's just say three years have passed. So that is uh, 36 months. So that will equal $2,188,800 on my very conservative uh, budget that I have given. Just gives you an idea of uh, how expensive litigation is, particularly when it comes to death penalty litigation. Now, there's also been um, issues that the prosecutors uh, have asked for additional money on top of their normal budget that they have for prosecuting cases. In this case, uh, Bill Thompson, he's requested another $135,000 for trial expenses, and that's up about $15,000 that he had uh, previously kind of budgeted uh, for this particular uh, trial. So the trial is not scheduled to uh, take place until sometime in 2025. So like I said, that is a lot of money. Now, something else that we did learn, and I'm going to call a little BS on it in the hearing that was held regarding scheduling. And there were some issues that came up that I think are a little weird. All right. Now, during the um, hearing, the one of the prosecutors responding to the court's questions said that the defense plans to call over 400 witnesses to the stand during the trial. I call BS. There's no way they could possibly have 400 witnesses unless maybe they're going to call everyone that ever went to the house where the killings took place. I just don't imagine how they could possibly do that. The trial would last a year if they were to do that. We'll have to wait and see. But the other issue that came up at the hearing was that the judge ordered the defense to come up with a more detailed description as to Brian Koberger's alibi. Now, normally where I practice in, in federal court, you have to provide your alibi usually 35 days prior to trial. That's it. In Idaho, you have to provide it like within 30 days of uh, you being arraigned. It's kind of backwards, but that's okay. It's probably a good thing. Anyway, so the defense is trying to come up with a very detailed cell phone analysis to show that Brian Koberger could not have been at the scene. There's maybe some sufficient evidence as to that, but it's going to come down to a battle of the experts. But the defense has to be able to produce more specific information. As you may recall, the previous disclosure was that Mr. Koberger was on a drive through the mountainside uh, by himself driving through the mountains uh, on the night of the murder, and therefore it could not have been him. So the question is, who are they going to call to support his alibi? So the defense has had over a year already. You would think that they would have some idea as who they intend to call during that particular 
uh, time frame and so that it can be disclosed. Like I said, let's move this along. We're going to talk three years from the time we get this case tried. Crazy. So anyway, the defense has until April 17th, and they have to file any other motions uh, that uh, the uh, court has requested. Anyway, the alibi deadline is uh, for April 17th uh, for the uh, defense, and they're going to be have a hearing in May to take up those matters. Next on the docket, yes, the Rust trial is providing us a little more insight as it relates to Alec Baldwin's conduct on the set. Now, we saw yesterday, and if you were watching Crime Talk, you have seen the video already because we streamed the trial live from day one. Anyway, the video was played yesterday of Alec Baldwin uh, using a gun as a pointing stick and opened fire after a director yelled cut on the set of Rust. Now, the movie, whose cinematographer Alec Baldwin accidentally shot and killed, now, the uh, footage uh, broadcast in court showed the actor discharging a large prop weapon during the 2021 shoot, which was halted by the killing of Helena Hutchins. Baldwin was seen chatting to crew members and uh, basically talking with his hands with the prop gun in one hand. In another scene uh, shown to the jury, Baldwin was seen firing the gun a few seconds after uh, the director had loudly yelled, cut. Someone could be heard exclaiming, mother effer, as he did so, although it's unclear why that was said. Now, it's alleged that the set was so unsafe that the actor pointed guns at a 12-year-old boy who was part of the cast as well. That came out in testimony. Jurors were shown a video shot during the production in which the adult male actor pointed the gun at Patrick Scott McDermott, between scenes. Now, their safety expert says that was a breach of the safety rules made all the more disturbing because six live rounds were found on the set. Now, the court also heard uh, testimony from a senior crew member who said that Helena Hutchins, the cinematographer, said, quote, I can't feel my legs after she was shot by Baldwin. Now, as you may recall, Baldwin is due to go to trial in July for involuntary manslaughter for the incident in Rust back in October of 2021 there in Santa Fe, New Mexico. He denies the allegations of wrongdoing and has even denied shooting Hutchins, although the gun was in his hand when the fatal shot took place. Now, the claims about safety uh, came out during this trial of Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, the armorer on the case. She has denied the same charge as Alec Baldwin, that being involuntary manslaughter. And like Mr. Baldwin, Hannah Gutierrez, the armorer, faces up to 18 months in prison if found guilty. One of the witnesses called to the stand was a guy by the name of Brian Carpenter. He's a former police officer who now works as an armorer and firearm instructor in both film and TV and told the court about a litany of safety failings during the filming of Rust. The jury was shown footage shot behind the scene which showed actors waving guns in the air. Uh, Mr. Carpenter said that they should have been pointed down the guns at all times when they were not being used for a scene. In quite a disturbing moment, he described the actor armed with a rifle pointed it straight at McDermott, who was 12 years old at the time and uh, played the uh, character of Lucas Hollister. In another shot, the expert said the same actor pointed the gun at a man's back. Now, police later identified six live rounds on the set of Rust, including two in the gun belt of the sum of the actors. Mr. Carpenter said, you have to assume there may have been live rounds in any of these firearms. 
Imagine the concern you have knowing at any point in time these guns could have a live round in it. That makes it more concerning when that shotgun is pointed at a man's back. Another video showed Gutierrez Reed holding a shotgun with its muzzle face up, pointing straight at her own face. When asked how you could maintain proper gun safety on a set, when the armor was handling guns in this way, Carpenter said, it's a very good question. It would be hard to implement. Anyway, the video of Baldwin showed him emerging from a cabin and firing his pistol and then lying down on the floor, getting up and opening fire again. Carpenter said they were unsafe because camera by the cabin was well within the no-go zone and should have been 21 feet away. He criticized Baldwin and said he should not have pointed his gun right at the camera and should have cheated to the side by at least four feet. Now, the video of Baldwin on the floor shows him demanding a second shot immediately after one that just finished. You could hear Baldwin saying, right away, right away, let's reload. Here we go, come on. We should have two guns both reloading. Asked if that is the kind of conduct was typical, their expert, Mr. Carpenter, said no. He said that Baldwin basically is instructing the armor how to do their job to hurry up and give it to me fast. That is the moment that Mr. Carpenter says you need to stop and say, no, I'm not going to hurry up. I'm going to slow down. This is creating an unsafe situation. Always on any kind of live training exercise, you don't want to put people in a nervous position. Telling someone to rush with firearms is not accepted. Now, the footage shows Baldwin lying on the floor explaining to the crew how the next shot should go. The prosecutor said he's doing what we saw previously in one of the videos. He's using the weapon as a pointing stick. They responded, when Mr. Baldwin behaves this way, that is the responsibility of the part of Miss Gutierrez. To intercede and correct and unsafe behavior, the expert said, and he would start pulling him aside and saying, let's be careful with that muzzle. Now, the clip also showed the moments after the director yelled cut, Baldwin let loose another blank round. Now, Carpenter said that when somebody yells cut, nothing else should be fired. He said he went off script and fired for whatever reason he felt he needed to fire. Carpenter said, I would have said something to him afterwards. I would have asked him why he did it. Was there something wrong with the firearm? Why did you let that extra round go off at the end? Now, Baldwin could have used a Nerf gun in the scene, Mr. Carpenter said, when he accidentally shot Hutchinson. Asked if there was no need to use a weapon in the scene, which was a rehearsal known as blocking, Carpenter said, absolutely. He said there's absolutely no need for it unless the actor specifically requested the prop. And you can, in blocking scenes, use a Nerf gun or your finger. It's to make sure everything is in the right spot it's supposed to be in. Carpenter said that Baldwin insisting on using a weapon was a bit outside of the norm. The trial continues, but we get a little preview of more information that wasn't known to us yet. So if you want to catch the trial, we have them all. Next, how many times have I told you, don't send your kids to sleepovers? Let me give you another example why. An Oregon man is accused of uh, drugging three 12-year-old girls with uh, Benadryl at his daughter's sleepover last summer. 
then guess what? Waiting for them all to fall asleep. Now, Mr. Michael Maiden turned himself into police on Thursday and was indicted on nine felony and misdemeanor charges, including causing another to ingest a controlled substance. Now, the uh, police department alleges that Mr. Maiden was taken uh, in at the uh, county jail and he is no longer in custody as of this morning. He posted a $50,000 bond. Now, according to the probable cause affidavit, the investigators were called to the Randall's Children's Hospital on Saturday, August 26, last year, to speak with three girls who had been treated after suspecting they were given drugs by their friend's father the night before. The affidavit alleges that uh, Maiden was unusually involved in the girls' sleepover plans and constantly checked in on them throughout the night. Apparently, they told that to the police. Now, the girls said sometime between 9 and 11 p.m., Maiden delivered mango smoothies with white chunks in them to the girls and encouraged them to drink them, even making a second drink when one of the girls complained about the taste. The girls reportedly uh, told the police. Now, investigators later allege in the affidavit that Maiden gave the girls benzodiazepine, according to the affidavit. The affidavit says that later when the girls went to bed, one of the girls who secretly did not finish her drink said that Maiden came downstairs, performed tests to see if the girls were sleeping, including putting a finger under one of their noses and waving a hand in front of their faces. The girls reportedly told the police she could feel him watching her by his presence, and she kept her eyes shut, pretending to be asleep. Once Maiden left the room, the affidavit alleges that the girls uh, frantically texted the mother of one and the mom uh, was asked to come pick them up. They asked if there was a family emergency. The girls responded by saying, please, please, please pick us up. The girl's mother soon alerted the other parents and arrived at Maiden's house to pick up her daughter. Now, Maiden reportedly insisted the parents come back in the morning, saying that the girls were asleep, but the parents ignored his request. Police said in an affidavit that the officers arrived at the hospital and said one of the 12-year-old girls walked slowly and used the assistance of her mother to balance. Her eyelids were heavy and she was speaking slowly. Another girl could not walk without assistance when her parents picked her up and would only repeat, what happened, what happened? Well, the police there in Oregon have determined that Maiden was responsible for the drugs detected in the girl's bloodstream, and it's unclear if Maiden had retained an attorney as of yet. He definitely, definitely needs one. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not saying every person that you go to is going to do it, but I'm telling you from experience, I have seen so many of these cases. There's always the guy, the dad that wants to be the cool dad, gets the girls liquored up. Next thing you know, I'm telling you, don't do it. Now, thank God this one little girl here thought that something wasn't right, was observant. But what do you think that dad would have done if the girls hadn't gotten up and said, we're out of here? You can just leave it to your imagination. Now, we'll give Mr. Maiden the presumption of innocence because he's entitled to that. But I know I'm I, I'm the old fuddy-duddy. I get it. But uh, I was... I never let my kids sleep over. It's bad stuff. As a judge said once, and it made complete sense, people go to do sleepovers to do what they can't do at home. Think about that. Next, defending your uh, daughter's honor or vigilante justice. An Arizona mom has been charged with attempted murder after she allegedly drove toward kids in a park and ran over a girl who she accused of bullying her daughter at school. Now, Brandy Gotch, um, allegedly drove her uh, Chevy Silverado 
with her four kids inside, speeding towards 15 children standing in the playground area uh, of a park on Tuesday afternoon. It's alleged that she ran over a girl's ankle before going back into the parking lot and fleeing the scene. Now, prior to the uh, alleged attack, she also pulled a 14-year-old boy's hair while yelling, I'm going to kill you and run you over, and apparently wielding a sharp stick that she got from her truck. Now, the mother of four was taken into custody at her home later that day and booked into jail on one count of attempted first-degree murder. Her bond sat at a paltry $250,000. And apparently during an interview with the detectives, Gotch said that her children were being bullied at school by this group of young kids. And nothing was being done about it even after she spoke with the school and law enforcement. Apparently, the bullying continued at the neighborhood park, according to Ms. Gotch, where she witnessed the group throwing wood chips at three of her kids, and one of them punched her 10-year-old daughter. She said that the group called her a fat biatch when she confronted them, and a video captures her grabbing a 14-year-old boy by the hair and chasing him with a sharp stick. She admitted to retrieving the stick from the vehicle, but asserted that uh, she never threatened anyone. Now, Gotch also told the police that a second boy followed her to her truck and started dancing behind him. She yelled at the boy to move, and the confrontation escalated as she went back to her truck. Ms. Gotch was then seen going back to her vehicle, which was now occupied by her four kids, and aggressively backed her vehicle towards the exit. But instead of exiting, she drove forward um, at a high rate of speed towards the playground where these 15 kids were standing. She allegedly ran over the girl's ankle, causing the injury, including a laceration and swelling before speeding away. Gotcha initially didn't even believe that she had run over the girl, but uh, later said that she hopes that she didn't. Uh, Gotch's uh, children uh, reportedly told investigators that they were unrestrained and were bouncing all over the vehicle, although the mother thought uh, she had uh, their seatbelts on. Part of the, inf part of the uh, little squabble was caught on cell phone camera, and police were able to track her down at home. Uh, geez, I don't know. You're an adult. They're kids. Did these parents not teach these kids any manners? Why you have to go around bullying other kids? Oh, gee, it's one of those things where if the girl ankle is broken, it's probably a felony. Uh, if it's not, it's still attempted murder, maybe attempted some sort of first degree assault. Creates a lot of issues. Then you get the kids in the car without seatbelts. You're going to get reckless endangerment charges. Ah, uh, you just hope that common sense would prevail. She's the adult in the room. Clearly could have been handled much, much differently. Sometimes you got to let it go. And finally today, our dumb criminal of the day. Now, police were summoned uh, Tuesday night to body talk. Apparently, body talk is an adult entertainment club in uh, Florida. And what were they there? To, allege, to investigate an alleged assault on a male customer. Now, the victim, a guy by the name of John McKelvey, told police that he was talking to several employees of the adult entertainment establishment about his career and acknowledged that the women were a little upset that they weren't providing any tips. Now, Mr. McKelvey, apparently ignorant of strip club etiquette, said that he didn't see any signs stating that it was mandatory to tip. Anyway, the employees were upset that the uh, victim was not uh, giving money 
which is a common practice in these establishments. And a, a friend of Mr. McKelvey's told police that he was drunk and uh, he had been talking about having a lot of money and not wanting to provide a tip. So at about 9 p.m., there was a confrontation with Victoria Jones, an adult entertainer. Now, Ms. Jones told the uh, sheriff deputies that uh, Mr. McKelvey was drunk and being rude and had been following employees from table to table, verbally insulting them. Jones then told the police that she picked up a small stack of money and threw it towards the victim who was struck in the face with the cash. The uh, cash tossed was apparently not in an aggressive manner, adding that this is a place where money is thrown everywhere. Good point. Anyway, court records do not indicate uh, what capacity Jones uh, works at the body talk or how many singles were allegedly involved in the crime. Now, Mr. McKelvey's friend told investigators he observed Jones take money and slap the victim with it. The video at the club shows Jones and McKelvey exchanging words before Jones hits the man with the cash and follows up with an open hand strike. Oh, he always knew there's more to the story, right? The first version is never the truth. Wasn't just money, there was a hand strike. Anyway, guess what? Miss Jones arrested for battery. Thank God it's only a misdemeanor and that the money was not deemed to be a deadly weapon. Needless to say, she was released from jail after posting a $500 bond, and she has an arraignment March. Now, Mr. McKelvey, um, dude, you should be just as much of a, you're a dumb victim of the day. Uh, I think it's pretty much common knowledge uh, when you go to a strip club that they only talk to you if you are giving tips. And if you don't, well, they don't want to talk with you. Um, but Miss Jones, you can't hit people and you certainly can't hit them with a slap to the face. Maybe Mr. McKelvey, once he sobers up, will realize the heirs of his way and realize that he made it into the World Wide Web. <laughs> and who knows, maybe he won't show up for the trial of Miss Jones, who was probably defending herself. Hint, hint. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more, say no more, Miss Jones. Not that I'm giving you legal advice, but just saying. Anyway, that's all we have for you today. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time on Crime Talk.